this week on Twitter. Dun, dun, dun. I did not send you to go-kart camp. <laughs> Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We are broadcasting live on the Big Talker 106.7 FM every single Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern, out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Consumer Choice Radio is a project of Consumer Choice Center, and we're very happy to be here. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from the capital of metropolitan Austria, Vienna. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, David Clement. David, sir, how goes it? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. Um, just, uh, you know, enjoying the summer. Uh, lots to talk about. Finally, some more movement on uh, the presidential side of politics, which is going to be fun to talk about. It's, it feels like it was years ago when we were talking about the Democratic primary because so much has changed um, globally in terms of COVID-19 and everything else. So uh, maybe maybe some normalcy coming back in terms of our uh, chit chats about um, about uh, Sleepy Joe and uh, and Donald Trump and and what's going on next with the election. So good times to be had. Yeah. And there's already I think I saw an article today in many states, people are already able to submit their ballots. And a lot of people already have. Um, I did the same. I didn't cast my ballot, but I've asked for my absentee to be able to send mine in i'll be uh, voting by mail which uh, apparently now is a political topic david i had no clue that it, had, it uh, is it had stumped down to the level of, of being part of some kind of uh, partisan uh, spiraling down and, until uh, dante's inferno but yeah apparently uh mail-in voting is all the topic uh, it means you're a democrat. talk radio all in plenty yeah. of blogs everyone's talking about it it means you're a democrat you voted by mail it means you're a democrat it's essentially so what's you vote, going on. okay so um <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean if you vote by mail and you wear a mask? Then you're definitely Ooh. a Democrat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, then you're an uber Democrat, according to the way in which the conservative blogosphere is, is going these days. Yeah, and there's, uh, there's a lot on that um, mask politics. Again, Consumer Choice Radio, we're very, very quick. Um, you know, if you go back and look at our archives over at ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, David, we were covering this debate before the debate even happened. So we were ready. We were armed. But now, of course, it's consumed so much stuff, and there's a, there's a lot of topics to cover. Um, you know, we had uh, had the big unveiling, mm-hmm. as it were, of uh, Senator Kamala Harris. Kamala yep. Harris. Apparently, it, that's also political. How you pronounce it, right? Is Kamala. it Kamala or Kamala? From everything I've read, it was Kamala. Okay, I'm probably going to get it wrong, and I apologize for getting it wrong, but that's a very... We're going to have a lot more to apologize for by the time this is over. Um, So (laughs) she was unveiled as the vice presidential pick for Joe Biden, who is running on the Democratic ticket, uh, meaning that I lost all my money that I put into the predictit.org gambling game. Who did you have? I had Val Demings. Ooh, I would have liked Val Demings a lot more than, than Harris. Yeah, Val Demings, former police chief, uh, Orlando, Orange County, uh, been in Congress, I think one or two terms, very sharp. Uh, She also falls into the criteria that, uh, I don't know if Biden set this or whomever, but it had to be uh, some kind of um, African-American or ethnic woman. uh, Yes, a minority female candidate. Yeah. So I do have uh, one question for you. I think I already know kind of what it is. Try me. would Elizabeth Warren fallen into that category or no? Oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I don't know. And I don't even know how much it was stated that it needed to be a minority because I think there's a lot of um, Hispanic and Latina, um, you know, political figures who might be maybe would have been just as good. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There was a letter. Um, this is um, Alan Holmes, who's uh, we've had on the program before. Yes. We, we, discussed, we discussed reparations. He... he uh, he had a good commentary. It was um, there's this letter that was uh, signed by 100 African American men um, of some kind of renown, either political or religious or civic leaders, and they called on Biden that he better choose a black female 
to be a candidate. And Alan's comment was like, guys, if this is what you're writing in August, like you're way late to the game. Like, where were you in demanding this months ago with some kind of like credible thing in the party? Like you're just Johnny come lately's. Well, it's also kind of strange because she also ran for president and lost. So when like, it's, it's weird to see people who thought she was a terrible candidate for president think that she's a miracle candidate for vice president, especially given the considerations of Joe Biden's age, whether or not he serves a second term, which even he has hinted that that might not even happen, uh, that he may be handing over the reins. Uh, so it's weird. We put it on autopilot very early on. <laughs> <laughs> This thing flies itself, right? <laughs> just, hit, just hit the button, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, what's that? That is very true, and it's kind of strange uh, that in the American political scene, you know, when you have these VP and all this stuff, it's mostly people who already ran throughout this, the presidential primaries. So the, the dirt has already been uncovered. I think that's one reason why. I lost all my money on Val Demings. Yeah. You know, she's not uber well-known in the national scene. She hasn't had the uh, so-called national beating up by the press who look into your past statements and look at everything that you've done in the past. So probably true. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Joe Biden is, is no teenager. And, um, you know, he'll be the oldest president ever elected if he is. And there will be a lot of uh, big spotlight on uh, the number yeah. two if he's elected. Yeah, I'm and a lot of heat. And I mean, one thing that other other potential um, VP picks didn't have is they didn't get a beat down from Tulsi Gabbard in the presidential debates. And now uh, that is a good point. That is a good point right there. And uh, with that, we're going to actually run to uh, to a clip going back to the presidential debates, and then you and I should chat about what we actually think about Harris as the VP pick. So Jamie, roll, uh, roll Tulsi Gabbard dunking on Kamala Harris. Let's do this. Congresswoman Gabbard, you took issue with Senator Harris confronting Vice President Biden at the last debate. You called it a, quote, false accusation that Joe Biden is a racist. What's your response? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response. You want me to play the response too? Yeah, yeah, let's go with the response because I think that, that it's an important part to see how she responded um, having to respond on her feet. Oh, that's good. All right. As the elected attorney general of California, I did the work of significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work of being in the position to use the power that I had to reform a system that is badly in need of reform. That is why we created initiatives that were about reentering former offenders and getting them counseling. It is why, and because I know that criminal justice Thank system you, is Senator. so broken, that I am an advocate for what Thank we you, need Senator. to do to your, not your only decriminalize, but legalize marijuana in the United States. I want to I bring uh, Congresswoman uh, Gabbard back in. Your response. Respond. The bottom line is, Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, oh, you owe them an apology. Wow. Ooh. You done goofed. Yeah. Now that <laughs> is a takedown. 
And I mean, so we'll go right into what we think about Harris. I know that you've been working hey, on... real quick. Do you think this clip will be in a future Trump ad? Yes. If, well, so it's a mixed bag because Trump has to pick between being the criminal justice president, which prior to the riots, he was because he was pardoning people, the First Step Act. He was very progressive in that way. Uh, even uh, Van Jones was in tears when they passed the First Step Act. And he said it was one of the, the, the best collaborative criminal justice efforts he's, he's ever seen. Now, with the riots and the, the questions about law enforcement, Trump's kind of pivoted a little bit. And so he's going to have to pick between the Democrats are going to defund the police and ruin our cities, and I'm the candidate of criminal justice reform. So I don't know where he's going to be there. Mm. Yeah, I think it's definitely the former. That's at least the, the trend yeah. we've seen so far from some of the ads. Because most, um, most of the TV ads that are going to be put together, you know, they're being recorded right now. And yeah. they're going to follow current rhetoric. And current rhetoric is law and order. You yeah. Know, it's not... Maybe if if let's say uh, let's say if um, Clement Osaski Consulting we were on the scene, you know we might uh, put some money up with uh, maybe some uh, let's say more progressive groups who would mm -hmm. want to get involved who are not all in on the Biden uh, Harris ticket and maybe you know give them a little bit of fodder uh, to run these kind of ads. Well, yeah, um, yeah, like the the Bernie crowd and the Tulsi Gabbard crowd are certainly not going to be jazzed up about Harris being the VP. And the big thing from that exchange that I look at, I mean, look, yeah, she was a prosecutor and she was a prosecutor's prosecutor. So she did whatever she could to win cases on bad laws. The problem is you either have to accept your record and say, you know what? Yeah, that's what I did at the time. And I disagree with some of those decisions or you have to own it and defend those positions. And what Harris did in that response is neither. She defended her positions while saying that when she was doing those things, she was somehow some progressive prosecutor. She was which, committed to reform while which, she was doing it. Which is not even remotely true. Not even remotely true. I mean, the you look at how she treated the founders of Backpage, uh, the the, it was basically like a Craigslist, which was being used by sex workers. And she ended up having them arrested and perp walked on a case that she admitted she knew she couldn't win on freedom of speech grounds. And they had to dismiss, and, and, and the judge dismissed the case um, almost immediately. And so she, she handcuffed these guys, walked them through court in their orange jumpsuits, had them splashed across every major newspaper as if they were perpetuating sex crimes, um, knowing full well that the case didn't have any merit and was going to get thrown out. And it just strikes me as something that is really, really uncomfortable in the context of the conversation the United States is having right now in terms of the criminal justice system and law enforcement. And so I think the Bernie bros and the Tulsi Gabbard side of the Democrats is probably not going to be as jazzed up about Harris being the VP, VP pick as, as some may think. Uh, and as a, as a prosecutor, you know, one of the great prerogatives of your job is that you have pretty broad discretion as to what you would like to prosecute and not. You know, it's always going to be the district attorney who's going to determine whether or not charges are filed, what those charges are, whether they'll be pursued, if they do a plea deal. You know, that's all on your shoulders. So if you really were this large um, reformer, it wouldn't be that difficult to do. And a lot of district attorneys are doing that. You know, they aren't prosecuting many nonviolent cannabis offenses, let's say, or other nonviolent offenses. There are a lot of prosecutors who are doing that in places like Philadelphia, Miami, um, I, New York, definitely, probably up and down California, no doubt. Yeah. Um, so you do have a lot of discretion. So I don't know. We'll see. I, I think there's, it's probably going to end up being like four years ago where it's just a left versus right game and everybody mm -hmm. will um, criticize and give all their worst accusations right now up, up until the actual election, but everyone will probably fall in line. Yeah, I uh, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it depends. 
It depends. Uh, I mean, the fact that people like AOC are speaking at the Democratic National Convention does suggest that you might be right. You mean she's zooming in to the convention? Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't know if they're doing the whole thing via Zoom. I know Joe's not going. He's going to be at home in his basement, and yeah, we'll we'll zoom in. Uh, God, he should have gotten an attic. It just sounds way better. Yeah, I'm in my attic. If you're just in the basement, it sounds terrible. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, to close it up on the Kamala Harris, uh, there's a small blog post I put together over on our website. Uh, you can find that on consumerchoiceradio.com. It's called "In Kamala Harris: Do Consumers Have an Ally or Foe?" So it's a lot of the topics that we mentioned, David, but also healthcare, tech regulation, vaping, and cannabis. So there, I think there's a a little bit that might be interesting there. Um, definitely someone that. Uh, is now part of the everyday conversation and could very well have power. So someone who I think we need to keep our eye on. And uh, definitely when it comes to policies and shaping what those policies will be, if there is a Joe Biden victory in the fall, Mm -hmm. someone that, uh, yeah, we'll probably be talking about a lot more. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, On that note of of democratic politics um, or left, if we want to say left wing for lack of a better term, one thing that really... This is talk radio. You can use more disparaging terms, yeah. but it's okay. <laughs> One thing that seems to be really picking up steam, both in Canada and the United States, is a concept of a wealth tax. And I'm seeing this pick up both in, in obviously with folks like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, and their, and their kind of newfound influence on Joe Biden, who in the past would have opposed such an idea, uh, as well as a push from the further left uh, parliamentarians in um, in in DC or in uh, Ottawa, uh, traditionally with the NDP, pushing for for a wealth tax as well. And I mean, there are a ton of issues with the wealth tax. I mean, how it's always framed is so. I mean, the Canadian example is a one percent wealth tax on fortunes over twenty million dollars. And so when most people hear that, they're like, well, I mean, who cares? It's 1% on $20 million. But that's not 1% on people who earn $20 million a year. It's 1% on people whose net worth is $20 million a year. And so it really depends on where your money is. Uh, it's very hard to, to judge where assets are. Uh, it creates all sorts of really uncomfortable externalities in terms of the financial market, ruining the bond market, pushing uh, pushing these high net um, investors out of stocks um, entirely uh, so that they can invest in illiquid assets like homes and, and whatnot that's harder to, to judge or easier to understate. And it just creates a really, really uncomfortable um, financial situations are like I'm working on a piece right now that will outline some of this, but some examples would be, I mean, traditionally you could put your money into bonds. uh, If you were uber wealthy as a way to government bonds as a way to preserve your wealth. One example would be if the bond rate is under the tax, well then none of these high net worth individuals use bonds at all. They completely leave the bond market uh, the government bond market, which depletes the government's ability to raise funds, uh, which is a huge problem. Um, they move to riskier asset classes. So in order to beat the tax, they have to have higher returns. So they don't invest like you and I would uh, regularly in the market, which decreases demand. And then you have pension funds that go underfunded um, where they have liability issues. And it just creates a whirlwind of problems and it's all packaged up under the language that seems to be popular today of taxing the rich as if they don't pay their fair share. Um, But at the end of the day, it does come home to hit folks like you and I, because if you're in the market or you're investing at all, uh, the way in which the movement of those high net worth individuals go certainly plays a role in what's available to you and how your own investments go. And there's just so much, uh, there's a huge blind spot for those on the left uh, in terms of what that actually looks like and how it's going to impact things like your retirement savings, the performance of your pension, um, and anything along those lines. So 
I just think uh, of uh, the people that, and Dave Ramsey, uh, Mm -hmm. the talk show personality who also plays on this station. uh, I think he's on at like 2 p.m. during the week. Yeah. So he makes the point that if you own a home in California, New York, Texas, Florida, you know, these are very expensive homes. And, you know, people's financial goals usually are to own their own home. And that is then an asset. At some point, it's not hard to be a millionaire if you own a house in California. No. Well, and and it's only going to take you a couple of years. And then if your house, you know, you bought it for whatever, and now it's worth 800000 and, uh, you know, you've got three cars or, you know, whatever, things add up. And in a way, this is going to disincentivize people from trying to own their own home. And as you mentioned, whoever, you know, might try to design a tax system like this, the lawyers and the financial advisors are much smarter and uh, it's going to end up being middle-class people who have to hold the bag and pay it at the end of the day. Well, yeah, exactly. It's, it's going to have a huge negative impact on middle income. I mean, we're talking like firefighter pension funds going underfunded. Um, if there's a huge withdrawal from, from, uh, in terms of demand for stocks. Uh, so if the Uber wealthy, the Jeff Bezos of the world and, the, the group that fall into that category are just going to move out of liquid assets and move into illiquid assets. Well, that's going to decrease. Uh, that's That's going to put a huge damper on the New York police fire, the uh, New York policeman's pension fund and its performance, its ability to, to meet its, uh, its obligations and liabilities. It's just a huge ripple effect. And, uh, just not not enough people see that. Uh, hopefully, next week by next week's episode, uh, we'll be able to chat about a finished product of an op-ed uh, that's come out by me on this because there seems to be just a huge. People have the horse blinders on. Taxing the rich seems to be like the drum that everyone can beat very fashionably today, um, but it is not the silver bullet for how we get out of uh, this pandemic recession. Yeah, and I think um, the you know we've already ha- rehashed these debates. We talked about it a lot during the Democratic primaries. Um, I guess it's going to come in renewed focus. Definitely the pandemic, a lot of people being out of work, um, everyone searching for you know the money train. Where's the money train? Where's the money? Where's the money coming? Uh, I, my theory was always that that's the reason that you have so much regulation against a lot of these tech companies is that it's very easy to go to the you know pages of the Wall Street Journal and see how much Google is making and Facebook and all these other companies. It's like, well, they get, there's plenty of money there. You know, it's just like the bank. That's why you go rob the bank. There's money there. Yeah. <laughs> it seems, you know, there's going to be more of that that's coming. Uh, I hope, you know, we don't need to have these kind of huge interventions in the economy. It's not, uh, I think Trump uh, had a press conference uh, earlier this week where he mentioned, you know, the growth of the economy and this and that, you know, everyone knows his talking points. But one point you mentioned is like, look, once we get back to a little bit of growth, we're going to have more tax revenues and we can have these debates and mm-hmm. you know, we can fund all this other stuff that people are asking for. Um, not to say that, that Trump is the most fiscally conservative uh, person in D.C., but, <laughs> you know, at least uh, bring that up. And that does bring me to one topic, David, that we're seeing in real time is the breakdown of the negotiations over the Carol Baskins Virus Relief Fund mm-hmm. Part deux. Uh, part two, the first one did go through. Uh, most Americans received a check if they were able to get it of twelve hundred U.S. dollars. If they had a child, it was a bit more. You did see that the first time. There's talk of a second one. There's a huge bill. There's a lot of stuff in there um, that I've written about too on the liability shield. So the idea that certain businesses and schools and organizations will not be liable if somebody catches COVID on their premises if they followed all the rules set by the CDC and federal officials, and then somebody wants to sue them for $25 million, you know, that we're not going to have these bogus lawsuits run crazy. Uh, It'll definitely, definitely come up and it'll definitely happen as much as the media tells you it won't. There will be a lot of these. Uh, That's one of the things being debated a lot more about money, about loans, um, it seems super convoluted, and, and I think pretty much everyone in Congress is kind of—I think they're home right now. I think everyone's back in, in I think their home so, districts their district, throughout yeah. the month of August. Yeah, so it's probably not going to be till September until this is resolved. And uh, if you're an unemployed American and you're listening to this, then you're going to have to wait another couple of months. The government yeah. uh, said you had to close your business or, or you know your place of work had to be shut down, but you're not going to be seeing relief a second time for— 
probably quite a while. Yeah, and I do know that Trump has insinuated that he may try and do something via executive action, and there are questions about even if that's constitutional. Oh, he, he, did, he did do, um, and that's the payroll tax cut. So apparently there is already a payroll tax cut that he has initiated. Yes. Uh, what you're talking about is like whether or not there's a lot of you know legal experts come on television and tell you, yeah. well, that's not going to work. It needs to be backed by Congress. And in a, in a way, it's just like the rents uh, that, that people are, are delayed in having to pay. It's not as if that obligation goes away. It's yeah. just delayed. Yeah. So you've got to keep that money saved up there, bro. Well, that's the problem is that a, a deferred payroll tax cut doesn't really do anything um, because you've got to park that money in the bank anyway because you know you're going to have to repay it, I don't know, midway ne- through next year whenever it were to kick back in. Now, Trump has said that if he's reelected – he would uh, seek to not make it a deferral and make yeah. it make it something that just went away, uh, which in that case would be beneficial. Uh, however, that's still not until after the election. So any talk about a, a payroll tax cut, I think, is pretty minuscule in terms of its impact. Now, the one good thing in the relief bill is we are starting to see some conversation about a more appropriate level of support um, rather than the $600 or so or whatever it was, plus state funding. For I know unemployment? That, yeah, yeah, for joblessness. Um, I mean, there are still 28 million Americans receiving some sort of joblessness support. Um, and the question is, I mean, when we look back, I know you have, you and I have talked about this before, but some, some new numbers did come out. I think it was like one in five people, uh, getting the, the support. Uh, and in some States it was as high as a thousand dollars a week combined mm-hmm. between the federal and state uh, support programs were making double than they would be on the job. So like 20% of recipients were making two times more money. And so how do you get those people back to work as your grocery stores or your restaurants or other service industry jobs reopen and become available? I mean, if you can get those benefits, then of course you're not going to, uh, not going to want to go back to work. I mean, that's just human nature in a sense. So I know there is some conversation about making the, the total amount a lot more modest so that it provides the support that for people who really need it without providing the disincentive to, to go back to work when it's possible. But I mean, as you said, who knows what's going to happen now, whether it's executive order or if it's uh, an act of Congress and how long that's going to take, are we going to, are we not going to see anything until after the election or are they going to basically play hide the ball between each other uh, until the election so that they can try and blame delays on on their opponents uh, who knows it's uh tricky yeah and there it's a gun it's more than hide the ball you know it's like totally get the ball off the field put it in a vault make sure nobody <laughs> sees it for a while yeah it's it's not going to be good and anything that's proposed around election time is super dubious yes because it, you know what do they have in mind american politics is always very short-term thinking yeah so it's it's not about the next four years it's about the next you know three and a half months, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I do, I do feel for, you know, many uh, brothers and sisters out there and those who are out of work now because of everything that's happened. And, um, in some States you do have places that have opened up and, and maybe the demand isn't there. You know, people are still afraid of what's happening. People are still scared True. and people don't really have options for their kids either. Well, yes. To figure out where to put them um, if, you know, let's say they, they have to go back to work or maybe they're out of work and, and trying yep. to find jobs. Uh, where you put your kids is an important concern. So this is the yeah, this is the, the huge debate going on right now where I am in Ontario, but it's common pretty much in any state is, do you send kids back to school? And I mean, my take on this is I don't think that there is any good option but sending kids back to school full-time is the least worst of all of the available options. And my thought process on this is, and and I think a lot of people are blind to it. Uh, I mean, so guys like you and I, we're lucky we get to do our jobs from remotely from home. So we don't. From our basements. Yeah. 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 We don't have some of the same stresses that other people do, but if, if you're not 
um, if, if, if you're going back to a factory or a workplace where you could not work remote, so you're going back to work and you have children, let's say both parents are going back to work, well, you have to send your kids to daycare or camp. And so any objections you had about school also apply to camp or daycare, right? It's a group setting. And so those people have no choice. They're sending their kids to some group setting either way. And then you'll have critics be like, okay, well, why don't we go every day, one day on, one day off, one day on, one day off? Well, that's even worse because then you have your kids exposed to your school group on Monday, and then you have them exposed to their daycare group on Tuesday, and then back to their school group on Wednesday. So you're doubling the exposure or potential exposure to the virus by going back and forth, which makes it more dangerous for everybody. And then the last thing that people propose is, well, then why don't we just go back, uh, we go back with reduced classes. So half the class size. Well, where are the other kids going? So they're either going to daycare if you're going half class, or you're gonna try and double infrastructure between now and September in order to fit all these kids in, which is just not feasible and not realistic. There's not enough space in a school. I mean, your average grade four class is, let's say 30 students here. So you're gonna to have to turn every class into two classes. Where do you come up with that space? You gotta, you're, what, you're bringing in portables, you're doing add-ons to create a bunch of new classrooms. Just for, use curtains as walls, just like our old college dorm rooms. Yeah, like it's just, <laughs> it's just not feasible. Um, and yeah, I have a good friend of mine is a teacher in Virginia, and he's currently dealing with this. They actually go back to school next week. Uh, so it's pretty, in some parts of the country, it's actually pretty quick. And what he told me is they're doing the half-half thing. Um, so half the kids will come one day, half the next, something like this. And they do have a remote option. Uh, from what he said, only about 30% of the kids chose the full remote option, uh, which again brings up a lot of questions of like, where are they doing it? They're at home. They must have someone there who can watch them, uh, which is yeah. not everybody. And then, you know, what does that mean for the teacher, for the whole classroom experience? This is why it's bad to have a monopoly. And a monopoly in education like we have now, every game is played the same. Everybody, you know, just has the normal schoolhouse and uh, school grounds, and you do your classes all the same. Um, I've actually met teachers who uh, work with a lot of charter schools, and they, they have had, like, full virtual learning for a long time. And they'll meet, I think, only about once a week, you know, on the actual premises, and then, you know, they'll play together and all this kind of stuff and have outside time. But most of the teaching is done while kids are either at home or connected to their laptops or iPads or whatever. So there is this option as well, virtual teaching and learning. Um, I can't even imagine for those of you who uh, who got into Harvard and are having to pay $45,000 a year, you know, basically be doing the same thing as us in our basements, but uh, connecting to the Harvard server. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> Paying for, for the privilege. Yeah, for high schoolers and older students, online learning is certainly pretty feasible. For younger students, I mean, I think of some of my nephews who are like grade one, two, three, there's no way you're unless you're putting on Paw Patrol as your class lesson, there's no in way the background. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not sitting through lessons virtually online. It's just not going to happen. Um, but on that note of like what to do, Rand Paul actually came up with a pretty good suggestion. Um, oh, what's this? I'm, I'm unawares. I'm caught unawares. Yeah. By the, suggestion it, it, by it, it, the Senator from Kentucky. Yeah. It appears as if good guy Rand is back. Um, because there are two sides of Rand Paul. There's good guy oh, Rand. The other mask. The other mask yes. was put down. And then there is bad guy Rand. Uh, good guy Rand is back, and he basically suggested because some so some uh, school boards are saying they don't want to open and they don't want to do virtual learning or they can't do it, especially for the younger kids. And so Rand Paul's suggestion was, okay, well then just take the take the budget that was going to be allocated for the first half of the school year and then divide it by the students and give it to the parents because they got oh, so like, yeah, the scholarship following the children, right? Yeah. Basically like, okay, if you're, if you're in, use Kentucky as an example, you're in Kentucky and the Louisville school board 
isn't going to open and you have a student in grade two, uh, you're both going back to work. Uh, your student, your child cannot go to school. You got to pay for daycare on out, out of your own pocket. You're already paying for school out of your taxes. And so while let's give you your, your tax refund to at least ensure you're not going to go broke trying to find weekday accommodation for your child. Um, I don't know how that works in practice. Um, I assume it would just lean on existing voucher systems because um, there are states that already do that where they give you vouchers based on what your allotment is uh, based on your taxes. And so uh, that would go a long way to help. I mean, that would, in my eyes, do you want to force school boards to be open if it's dangerous to be open? No, that, I mean, that's not great. Um, different regions have different issues. I mean, there's, the rates uh, for the virus are much higher in some places than they are others and in, and virtually non-existent in some regions. And so that really does depend. Do you want to force them to be open? Probably not. I don't know. But at the same time, do you want to punish parents because the school board won't open and basically make them pay out of pocket for uh, other education services or daycare or camp so that they can go back to work? Well, no, you don't want to do that either. And so this suggestion is a nice kind of middle ground where it says, okay, fine, if you're not going to reopen, so be it. But what we are going to do then is we're going to give some money to parents so that they can cover their costs and they're not going to go broke in the process of trying to go back to work. I did not send you to go-kart camp. <laughs> Best quote from heavyweights. Yeah, yeah, and you bring up a good point. And um, I think this kind of scholarship program is, is pretty cool. It's interesting. I know they do, they do it in places like Sweden, and, and we've mentioned vouchers in the past, and there's a lot of places where people are able to do it. I mean, this is the complete personification of consumer choice uh, if ever you ever had it. Yeah. I mean, imagine that, you know, most of education in the States is funded by local property taxes. Uh, you know, you pay whatever amount on your home, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, with the wealth tax as well, geez, that'll be cutting in your, <laughs> your budget. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that money goes into the coffers usually of the school district or county. And then that is kind of how the money is divvied up and figured out now imagine if that amount could be applied i have heard in the past and it's not every state but if you do send your child to private school um, sometimes you are able to get a rebate of the money that you spend in your property taxes that would otherwise go to the public school system and then you can use that to also help fund your your kids private education it's not every state mm-hmm um, and I'm sure it's limited. Um, I'm sure it's pretty small, but I think most states exist. you double pay. Probably, yeah. yeah, no doubt. But then again, if uh, a lot of the pure private schools that that people are going to, you know, the, the, these things are pretty pricey anyway. You know, ten thousand yeah. dollars a year for third, fourth grade. Yeah, um, that was not the school I went to. We'll just no. <laughs> Neither so you I. are listening to a Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker 106.7. FM. I think we covered the full gamut there of uh, what's happening in terms of um, what Jonah Goldberg calls rank punditry um, on the federal political level. Um, there's been a couple things happening in the news that I know you've been uh, tweeting and writing about, David. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I know happened just recently, and uh, I was kind of dragged in due to some of our past work, is what's happening in California with AB5. Yes. And one point I wanted to mention is, um, you know, we've talked about harm reduction and vaping. And, you know, if any of you are uh, active on Twitter and you know anything about vaping on Twitter, it is a very, let's say, cool, diverse community, very loud and proud people. You know, they have a lot of things in their bio. They're very active and they will show you exactly the vaping device they use. But, man, uh, anti-AB5 Twitter, uh, freelance Twitter in California is insane. I thought I had good memes. These guys are running in a whole different league. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of that there. So the, the reason we bring this up is there was the AB5 law passed in California uh, that came into effect earlier in the year. And the idea was that if you are a tech company, uh, most specifically rideshare companies, 
your freelancers who use your platform in order to pick up customers or to have clients, things like Airbnb and Uber and Lyft, uh, these people now need to be classified as full employees who have all benefits um, that you need to deduct, you know, all the different taxes and things you need to pay them, and they cannot be freelancers anymore. Now, in California, this pretty much decimated the freelance sector, which, again, is not just Uber and Lyft drivers. It's practically everyone who works in Hollywood is a freelancer. The music <laughs> industry, everyone is a freelancer. Journalists. People who work at events, many journalists, freelance journalists. I mean, this is a very important thing, and there is thankfully uh, a nice, robust opposition to this um, that we have joined, uh, this amazing coalition, David, that uh, I think— you know, could have a, a good measure to change things come uh, come November. Yeah, and I think you put it really well um, in describing this, saying AB5, when it comes to companies like Uber and Lyft, would essentially turn them into taxi companies. And the reason that they exist and are successful is because they are not taxi companies. And that comes with the choice, the availability, the technology, the flexibility. And so it just strikes me as so odd uh, and i mean borderline cronyistic in terms of the clear winners of a of a law like this or the legacy industries that were disrupted by technology those are the those are the groups who win from this it's not the folks who are trying to make ends meet because i mean all it means is that if uber has to make all of its drivers employees it just gets rid of all of the drivers who don't drive full time. So anyone who was using it as an extra source of income is gone. They're not going to pay your health insurance if you're going to drive an hour or two hours a day or a couple hours a week, um, or even just on special occasions, which I know many people do, whether it's New Year's oh, yeah. or Halloween. I've, I've had friends, yeah, I have friends who do it, um, you know, do it on the weekend whenever it's a big college weekend and everyone's yep. out at the bars. You yep. know, they go, they know they can make at least 180, 200, 250 bucks for the night, and I have mm -hmm. one friend uh, who's over in, I believe he's in Idaho. Uh, he actually did Uber the entire time his wife was pregnant, and collected all that money uh, to pay for the pregnancy and all the hospital stuff. And I mean, that's a whole other issue, and the fact that you need to pay so much to have a, a kid nowadays. But yeah, you know, he was able to raise that money independently. You know, he has a day job that he does nine to five. Mm -hmm. And he worked nights and weekends to raise the money. Um, is that guy now going to have to be an employee? You know, he's going to get double taxed. It's not uh, working two jobs as employee. The tax system is not a fan of you. <laughs> no, or it's a big it's a big fan because uh, it can it can raid your account. But uh, this is very bad. So there was a what happened recently is a, a judge came down and told Uber and Lyft that they need to classify their employees or they need to classify drivers who are currently freelancers and contractors as employees. Uber said, basically, if we have to do this, we're just going to shut down in California. Maybe we'll think about coming back. Lyft did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is bad. It's bad for anyone who was a driver, but also bad for any of us who use these services, because essentially now they're just going to go into the ether and there's less choice available. Yes. And I mean, it's one of the few sectors of the economy where we actually had employment or job growth because as the pandemic oh, that's right. deliveries yeah. and, right? and tech stuff yeah. so it's not just getting people to and from it would also be the people who deliver your food and so if you're wanting to do like a dinner rush on uber eats or skip the dishes and it may helps you make a couple extra bucks uh, in the evening i mean they're not going to hire you and cover all of your employee costs as an employee if you can only commit to work a couple hours a day for them. You gotta be wanting to do that for your full-time job. And a lot of people did this with the exact opposite intention. They're doing it on top of what they have or the reduced hours they had at, let's say their ordinary job. And so, I mean, just naturally, I mean, companies are either gonna shut down completely, which is a huge disservice. I mean, imagine, just picture a second wave come, let's say November, and California goes into full lockdown again, and you don't have delivery services for food or groceries. Wow. That's gonna suck. I mean, I can only speak for myself, 
um, we relied on those a lot um, early on, especially very early on in the pandemic where like people really didn't know what was going on. And it, it sounded very, very scary. Um, what's going to happen there? I mean, that's going to be, I think very quickly that will put the, the, the silliness of this policy front and center for all Californians to see. Yeah, and I, thankfully, you know, we've had Brendan Carr, who's a commissioner at the FCC. He talked a lot about this. He's very passionate about it. It has pretty much nothing to do with his, his day job, but um, something that he's written on a lot. And uh, we had a very good interview with him. So you can go check out our archive of all of our past interviews. Uh, the one with Brendan Carr, we mentioned AB5. We talk a lot about that and net neutrality and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find that on consumerchoiceradio.com or just look up Consumer Choice Radio on YouTube, by the way, guys. We've, yep. We put all of our interviews on there so you can uh, see the beautiful faces of our guests and the not-so-nice mugs um, of David and myself. Yes, yes. And it, it wouldn't be... Wouldn't be an episode of Consumer Choice Radio if we didn't also talk about what's going on in Hong Kong. Um, that's a theme that we've been chatting about, China, the Communist Party. I did write something on this just a few days ago. Um, so we had talked about the national security law in the past. We've talked about how that got passed, and that basically meant that if you were critical of the communist government in Beijing, that they could arrest you and throw you in jail and do all sorts of terrible things to you. Um, obviously that is atrocious is a huge human rights violation. It erodes, uh, the previous agreements as to why the British ceded Hong Kong to China, uh, years ago. But what's made this trend even worse is that the government in Beijing has actually started to lay charges. Um, and in many instances, arrest warrants for people who do not live in China. And so for those who have escaped China and who, are, who have sought asylum uh, in the West, they have laid charges against those individuals. And they've even charged a naturalized U.S. citizen who's been a U.S. citizen for over 25 years with violating this law of promoting democracy in Hong Kong. And so it really is troubling that the government in Beijing essentially doesn't think that it has any restrictions on who it can target with this law. Um, and that's a huge, that's a huge problem uh, in terms of what the ripple effect is going to be with how consumers uh, and how businesses deal with other uh, businesses and entities that are owned uh, and operate in mainland China. So definitely some concerning developments there uh, to have to have like the and this is one thing that i think is very difficult is is that you know, our generation especially we heard a lot about the cold war about the soviet union uh, you know and we're kind of used to the war on al-qaeda and this mm-hmm. kind of stuff you know the the chinese communist party and what it's doing it's it's difficult because it's not out there, right? This is not uh, Nazi aggression in the 1930s, you know, taking of Czechoslovakia. It's very, like, strange finance deals in Hollywood. It's a lot of censorship about what goes out in some of the movies, which is insane. Yep. It's a lot of these deals that are put together for American or Canadian companies who want to go and invest in China. Mm-hmm. You essentially need to sign over all of your IP and then in three weeks, you find your product for sale on Amazon that you that you weren't even yeah. selling there. It's this kind of stuff that is happening all in the background. And what should never be lost in this is that you know the the Chinese Communist Party, which is again ruling a a country in a very totalitarian fashion, um, they are many many times in all of these companies they're themselves involved. It is a requirement in China to have a member of the board who is a full member, and there's eyes and ears on what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, can you imagine if someone goes in there and says, "Hey guys, I think we need to have encryption," you know, that we offer to to, to Chinese users, you know, so they can use this messaging app? Uh, you know, who do you think is going to throw the first veto? <laughs> yeah, uh, probably well, I, the Chinese Communist Party guy. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, beyond that, there are additional. Uh, laws. There's the 2014 counter espionage law and the 2017 national intelligence law, which more or less state that if you're a mainland China mainland owned company, 
and the state comes to you with a request for information that has to do with national security or state intelligence work that you have to comply. And so a lot of these, I mean, I think we're, our, the question is, would, would a company like TikTok comply with that request? Yes. If the answer is no, well, what happens if they say no? These people are going to get thrown in camps, uh, into labor camps, um, and end up on a train going to, to a labor camp or God knows what. Um, so it's, it's not a question of like, well, they, they wouldn't comply. Well, if they don't comply, they're just going to be reprimanded for it in a very disgusting and, um, I mean, heavy handed is an understatement, but. And uh, here's the, the main issue with this as well is that people offer then the whataboutism of the American or Canadian systems in that, oh, well, you know, Facebook has to comply with U.S. law and doing whatever. It's like, well, the difference is, is that we have warrants um, that are signed by judges and there's accountability. You yes. know, it's not willy nilly from some central agency or department and in the cases where those have happened these are scandals you know yes. uh, we, we didn't really cover much of the unmasking gate and all this stuff mm -hmm. within the trump administration and yeah. the big FD, fbi investigations but you know these are scandals for good reason because private citizens are having their rights violated and that's a big deal in liberal democracies it's yep. not a big deal in totalitarian countries where this stuff is happening and I think more in North America, we, we're only seeing the beginning of this. You know, we really need to go down to Australia to figure out how they've been dealing it for, with it for years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're, I'm definitely going to try to get James Patterson back on. He's a senator down there in Australia. Yeah. And uh, he's like a, I think he's a bona fide enemy of Beijing, um, according I think, to I me. think he's persona non grata. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's he been declared I, yeah. an enemy of the state. Now, I will note, so when you say that, Sometimes that does happen in a country like the United States. It is a scandal, but there are also instances where these companies say no and they don't comply, like Apple. When, when asked by security agencies to create backdoors and unlock devices. Oh, yeah, it was, uh, the San Bernardino killer, they wanted to unlock the phone and Apple said no then that puts at risk all the encryption that all apple basically all yeah. apple users they they defied the state and what happened when they defied the state nobody went to jail right nobody no, just a lot a lot more senators bought stock That's well yeah <laughs> yeah but no yeah yeah good point <laughs> no, yeah, but nobody was picked up they didn't raid the apple office and start taking records they didn't arrest the ceo um, all of which would definitely happen if that were to occur uh, in Beijing. Um, and so there's just a fundamental difference. And I got into, I got into this on Twitter with uh, someone who I won't, I'm not going to name, but I had a lot of respect we need a, for. We need a Twitter battle jingle that just yes. plays when we describe these. Actually, yeah, that would be a good segment of the show with a lead-in tune to like, oh, this week, this week on Twitter. Don't do it, Um so this guy who I have a lot of respect for, he's won uh, he, oh, a, a series of very high profile civil liberties cases in regards to cannabis. Um, is really one of the forefathers for why cannabis is legal medically and, and then obviously recreationally. And I basically made that argument that I just made about Chinese uh, about the influence of the Communist Party and, and various governments. And he basically said, like, well, what's the difference between the Communist, the Communist Party and the U.S. government? And I responded very, with a little bit of snark, basically saying, like, one is actively engaging in what looks to be a genocide and engages in all sorts of totalitarian and authoritarian policies against their own citizens well beyond what's tolerable in a liberal democracy and the other one doesn't and his response was okay well which one is which as if there's some sort of moral equivalency between the two which i mean i just don't think no no thinking person could look at the situations between the two countries and think that they were even remotely morally equivalent you can despise donald trump to the ends of the earth 
but the institutions that make the United States function are far superior on every measure when you compare it to the institutions that are being used to deprive and oppress a billion people in China. And the fact that you had otherwise intelligent professionals basically creating some sort of moral equivalency between the two, which is mind boggling. I, I was stunned. Well, sounds like we need to get Mark Emery on the Consumer Choice Radio program. Ah, it wasn't Mark. It wasn't Mark. Oh, was it? It okay, wasn't sorry. Mark. No, it was not Mark. You, you're So you're not going to unmask who this individual was? You, no. You don't want to send the Consumer Choice Radio Twitter mob on these No, people. I'm not going to. I will not unmask this. I actually still have a lot of respect for him. I just think maybe he was having a moment or something. I don't know. He had some of the Hong Kong wacky tabacky yeah. <laughs> in his back pocket. Some of the devil's yeah, and, lettuce. And, and speaking of that, you know, dictatorships are not just um, in the Mandarin language. Um, it's also happening on the continent of Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a huge uprising right now in Belarus. Um, thankfully, I was actually able to visit Belarus a couple of years ago. It's, it's still considered the last dictatorship in Europe. Uh, Lukashenko, who's been president now for, geez, probably my whole life, I don't know, 30 years or something, um, he would. He just won a landslide sixth election. Um, it was over eighty percent. Uh, wow, it's really crazy how that works out. Um, obviously, the young people are not having it. Uh, they're up in arms. Um, people are, are actually out in the street, and it's not. You know, I wouldn't say it's widespread violence like we're seeing in places like Chicago and uh, you know some of the fallout with yeah. um, the protest uh, that we've had over the summer. But it definitely is a groundswell, and it reminds a lot of people about the the freedom fighters against the Soviet uh, mm -hmm. occupiers. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's there's a lot of songs, very patriotic things. It's it's very fascinating to see. If you haven't seen that, I, I do urge you uh, click on your search engine, just type in Belarus protest, figure out yeah. what's happening there. And there's, um, there's a, a I think uh, a friend of ours who's on the program. I mean, I'd like to get him on the show to discuss it, Piotr. Yeah, um, he's he's an activist who's, who's been he's been kind of a thorn a thorn in the regime's side for a while. Uh, he got uh, preemptively arrested uh, pretty quickly a couple weeks ago. I believe he was just released earlier this week. Um, I I don't know how that happened, but uh, you know, here's a guy who is out there fighting for all the democratic values that we hold dear and mm -hmm. uh, we kind of take for granted. And uh, it's something to remember, you know, everything that we have around us, good government, order, um, constitutions, uh, people not having their rights infringed is not natural. Right? Yeah. This is a, it's, it's actually an exception in, uh, in history. So a lot of examples from Belarus, um, from uh, what's happening in uh, mainland China and currently in Hong Kong. So mm -hmm. um, I would recommend our listeners to pop on over to our website and we'll put on uh, David's article um, in the Western Standard, yeah. China's Hong Kong crackdown comes to Canada. Yeah. And David, you've got a lot of examples of other people in the West. Yes. Um, so very good article. And, cool, man. and just real quick on that Belarus note for those listening, there is there are some very good clips in terms of the extent of the corruption in this election. Um, there's factory workers who are basically all assembled for their morning meeting. I don't know how many it is. Let's say it's a couple hundred. And the union leader is like, okay, well, who voted for the opposition? And everyone says that they voted for the opposition. And somehow this guy got 80% of the, uh, the national vote. And then immediately it becomes clear that the, the election was a joke. Uh, big hockey fan too, Lukashenko. Um, <laughs> big hockey fan. Yes. So, uh, I don't know if there's, a, if there's an NHL protest. I mean, could you imagine if there was an anti-Belarus thing in the NHL like there was in, or I guess the complete opposite in the NBA with China? Could you imagine something like this? Like you couldn't talk badly about the Actually, corruption? Yeah. Are there a couple of good uh, Belarusian uh, players yeah. that we can... Uh, we should have them uh, on, see what happens. Uh, I don't want to contribute to everybody get, uh, getting swept up, but I, no, I think these guys are safe in North Well, America, I mean, so. for, for a lot of these guys, it's like the, the guy who plays for the Celtics who left Turkey, who basically spends oh, most yeah. of his time... He, his, his story is, is actually amazing. Yeah, it's um, fantastic. As, as all of you know, I'm the biggest sports fan ever, and I know all these teams and stuff, but uh, him, whom I don't know, but I know the story, and, and it's great, because he's actually a huge critic of the of the Turkish regime. Yes. Um, he's been doing good stuff. Actually, what's his name? Turkish regime Ennis. basketball guy. Ennis Kanter? That's it. 
yeah, Cantor. So, I mean, his dad had been arrested at a certain point. It's, yep. it's very bad. And it's because he, he spoke out against the Turkish government. Um, and, you know, what's been happening there has not been pretty for civil liberties either. And no. uh, a place where the Internet is still very censored, as our colleague Bill Vietz, who's been in Turkey the last couple of weeks, uh, will gladly tell us. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All sorts of crazy crackdowns. So, Uh, yeah yeah that that about does it for us um david it's been a pleasure uh catching up with you the last hour on uh, consumer choice radio yeah thank you all for listening in and uh remember to subscribe like uh like our podcast if you're listening online follow us on twitter and we will see you next week catch you then